Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is about college and the humanities, and specifically what I am calling the illiberal arts. My guest is Gabriel Noapron, the founding director of the Center for Academic and Intellectual Freedom, a professor of English and World Literature at Northern Michigan University, and a co-host of Three Jews, Four Opinions, a wonderful podcast that I highly recommend. Honey, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I thought, God, something happened. This is before cell phones. So something happened to one of my brothers or my sister or my mom or something. I said, what's the matter, Dad? He said, I went to see. The guy's name was Charlie Delcher, who was a vice president of the Farmers Bank, which was a state-owned bank that did a lot of the financing of people wanting to purchase a car. So I went to Charlie and asked to borrow the money. He said, he won't lend it to me. He said, I'm so ashamed. I'm so damn ashamed. That was President Joe Biden, rambling, as is his wont, about the shame his father felt when he could not secure a loan for Joe to attend college. The story reveals Biden's age, because the federal government has, at least since 1965, guaranteed college loans for financial need. And since 1993, it has made those loans eligible for anyone. Now, the problem is that too many students are graduating, or worse, dropping out of college, and they are saddled with crippling debt from those easy-to-get loans. So Joe Biden has issued a constitutionally dubious decree to forgive up to $20,000 of that debt for students earning less than $125,000 a year. Now, I'm not going to go through the reasons why I think this policy is ill-advised and amounts to a midterm bribe to likely Democratic voters. For more on that, I recommend reading Charlie Cook at the National Review or listening to Commentary's podcast last week. I do, though, want to examine how college has transformed as the cost of attending it has soared. And make no mistake, the price of college really has skyrocketed. As Robert Archibald and David Feldman write in the introduction to their 2010 book, Why Does College Cost So Much? In 1960, the price of tuition, room, and board for an out-of-state student at William & Mary was $1,504. By 1981, it was $5,752. And in 2006, it was $32,433. Today, it's more than 60000 So what exactly are you getting for all of that? Not just William & Mary, but, you know, all of these very pricey schools. Well, it is a great credential. It's a leg up for your first job after graduation. William & Mary, in particular, is an elite school. It tells future employers that you test well and had it together enough in high school to get pretty good grades. But what about the actual education part of it? Here, it's less clear. Now, if you're talking about the hard sciences like physics or mathematics or some of the social sciences like economics, you're going to get a first-class education at any of these like seriously competitive schools. But if you want to pursue the humanities, well, it's a different story. The academic fashion for the last 50 or so years has emphasized a postmodern intellectual tradition that scoffs at the idea that there is an objective truth at all, and instead it says that knowledge itself is an extension of power. The humanities today are influenced by thinkers like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and other critical theorists who sought to deconstruct the language we use to explain and understand reality. This is how you get the idea that gender is a social construct or that words are violence. 
Here's a short clip from a documentary on Foucault explaining his theory of madness. Behind the revelation of madness as a power rather than a disability lay a deeper and more unsettling insight that science and rationality, those twin peaks of human achievement, might themselves be inhumane, turning the medieval figure of the fool into the modern figure of the freak. Now I should say that my guest today, Professor Braun, does not believe Foucault or the other postmoderns should be banished from the academy, far from it. But like many of us, he worries that this postmodern conceit, its relativism and proliferation that goes with it of critical theory-influenced fields, the hyphenated studies, so to speak, has undermined the liberal values that make free inquiry and the university itself possible. The distinction between the scholar and the activist in this sense has evaporated. And all the while, in the last half century, conservative scholars have nearly disappeared entirely from the universities and especially the elite ones. Now, for the small L liberal, viewpoint diversity is valuable. It's a check against bias. Dialogue, in good faith, helps us arrive closer to the truth. But for the postmodernist, viewpoint diversity is just platforming wrong think. Or worse, it excuses various kinds of oppression or power disparities. As a result, college campuses have seen a sharp rise in what can only be called anti-free speech activism. Here's a group from Black Lives Matter at William & Mary shouting down the head of the Virginia chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union in 2017. Sixty years ago, student radicals demanded universities like Berkeley respect free speech. Students cherished the First Amendment because it protected their right to protest the Vietnam War. Today, students demand universities protect them from arguments in favor of free speech itself. And here's a snippet of a protest this year at Yale University Law School, of all places, against a panel discussion on the importance of free speech at universities. Credit here, by the way, to Aaron Sabarium of the Washington Free Beacon, who broke this story and breaks many others. As you know, Yale has a policy of freedom of speech. Can't make it up. Now, another crisis for this new illiberal arts is that the hyphenated studies are susceptible to embarrassing hoaxes. A lot of these criticisms of uh, science were coming from people who associate themselves with the political left, as I do, and were somehow conceiving that bashing the philosophical credentials of science um, was somehow going to help um, leftist politics. And I think that's um, totally misguided. Um, they were taking relativist positions where they were saying things like, uh, you know, your, your theory that the universe started in a, in a big bang uh, 12 billion years ago uh, is no more and no less valid than, um, than pick your creation myth of any re religion you like. And we just heard from physicist and mathematician Alan Sokol. In 1996, he submitted the paper 
transgressing the boundaries toward a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity to the journal Social Text, which is published by Duke University Press. The article was deliberate gibberish. He argued, using fancy jargon and shoddy logic, that the theory of gravity was false. After Social Text published Sokol's fakery, he revealed the hoax in Lingua Franca and argued that he felt compelled to do this because many in the humanities and social sciences were attacking, in the tradition of Foucault, the very foundations of science itself. Now, one might think that after an embarrassment like that, the deconstructionist or postmodernist, whatever you want to call them, the critical theorists, would begin to fall out of favor in the academy. I mean, how is it possible that one of their leading journals could publish this nonsense? But of course, the movement continued apace. The proliferation of new fields like fat studies or queer studies or gender studies continued. So a generation after Sokol, three more scholars decided they had to intervene again. Approximately June of 2017, I, along with two other concerned academics, Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose, have been writing intentionally broken academic papers and submitting them to highly respected journals in fields that study gender, race, sexuality, and similar topics. We did this to expose a political corruption that's taken hold of the university. By this point, several of these papers have been accepted in highly respected journals, and one that claims that dog-humping incidents can be taken as evidence of rape culture has been officially honored as excellent scholarship. I'm not going to lie to you. We had a lot of fun with this project. The, the reviewers are worried that we didn't respect the dog's privacy. <laughs> <laughs> the voice you just heard was James Lindsay from a 2018 video with his collaborators Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose. They had just learned that the leading journal of feminist geography had accepted their paper on rape culture at dog parks in Portland. I'm not making this up. This trio managed to get seven hoax papers published in peer-reviewed postmodern journals. That's right, seven. In a piece for Ario Magazine, the three explain themselves as follows. Any scholarship that proceeds from radically skeptical assumptions about objective truth by definition does not and cannot find objective truth. Instead, it promotes prejudices and opinions and calls them, quote, truths. Now, I'm just a journalist and not an academic. But a liberal university, I would think, would welcome this intervention. But Gosian, Lindsay, and Pluckrose exposed a hoax. The hoax that journals like Gender, Place, and Culture are actually producing knowledge and scholarship. But of course, academia did not welcome the intervention. Instead, they sharpened the pitchforks and went after the witches. Here's a clip from Peter Bogosian in 2018, a few months after all of this becomes exposed, going to his office at Portland State University and explaining an open letter that was published in the student newspaper from other faculty denouncing him. The goal in the contemporary bullying style of Trumpist politics is to ridicule others for personal gain. PSU Educational Collective. PSU Pro Education Collective. These people are, <laughs> look at that, they're anonymous. We have opted to communicate our concern through a collective identity rather than individually. Bogosian has not only indicated his less than collegial attitude with his hoaxes, but his actively targeted faculty to other institutions. Really, where would that be? None of us wish to contend with threats of death and assault from online trolls. I mean, it just, it is utterly incredible to me 
what the university has become when you have to publish an anonymous hit piece on people. The harassment of Bogosian became too much over time. He was sent before a disciplinary board that actually accused him of unethical research because he used, ready for this, human subjects, in this case the editors of academic journals, in an experiment. I mean, it's just Soviet in a way. So last year he quit his post at Portland State University and he's now involved with the University of Austin, a new private school that was founded by Barry Weiss and others that attempts to recreate a college campus that is going to be kind of free of this illiberalism. Anyway, all of this comes back to this idea. Is college worth it? And again, if you approach it as a credential, you're going to just sort of knuckle down and get through your four years. I suppose it's, depending on the prestige of the school, if you go to a Harvard or a Yale or something like that, it is a way to set yourself up for better jobs in the future. And that's, I guess, fine. But if you believe in a liberal education, a chance to study great books and hone your skills as a critical thinker, to confront new ideas, to debate new ideas, well, then stay away from the elite universities because they're no longer places that teach students how to think. They're now places that teach students what to think. And that's not very liberal at all. I was smoking with the boys upstairs when I heard about the whole affair. I said, one more, William and Mary won't do now. Well, I did not think the girl could be so rude. And I'm never going back to my... now a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Well, right now, the re-education is incredibly fortunate to have with us Gabriel Noah Brahm. He is the founding director of the Center for Academic and Intellectual Freedom, a professor of English and world literature at Northern Michigan University. He is one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Three Jews, Four Opinions, where you can really hear an interesting discourse of people who disagree, but it's still there's still civility. And you should follow him on Twitter at Bromsky. That's B-R-A-H-M-S-K-I. Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Eli, it's a thrill for me to be on my favorite podcast. I'm a podcast junkie. You know, I listen to podcasts all day, every day. I can't live without my commentary daily, my fifth column, my red scare, my go. bar pod. And until they have me on, you're my favorite. There, <laughs> I love it. So the as we talked about earlier today, but the show is really about... What is happening on campus, and particularly in light of the student loan forgiveness that President Biden announced last week? But I really think that our audience will really appreciate your insights because I want to just kind of give me a little bit of your 
intellectual background, which is you have studied these literary theorists and particularly the postmodernists. So you know of what you speak when you come to this kind of material critically. So just give us a little walkthrough from your biography in that respect. Well, that's all true. For better or worse, I went to school in the heyday of postmodernism before anyone was too sure what it meant, what it was, before there were a lot of secondary sources on authors like, or as we call them, theorists. Theorists of what? Just theorists like Michel Foucault, Jean Baudrillard, Jacques Derrida. Up until today, somebody like Judith Butler, Slavoj Žižek, they're like the descendants of those that we were into when I was in grad school. Jacques Lacan is one that I still like a lot. The thing about the theorists of what came to be known as postmodernism or what we called poststructuralism was that they represented all of them in one way or another, a radical challenge, not only to our institutions, but to our very concepts, to our very understandings of ourselves, what it means to be a self, and even of what it meant to know something. In a lot of ways, these theorists were Nietzscheans, and they had they had really taken seriously Nietzsche's so You're talking that, about Friedrich Nietzsche, I just want to make sure. Yeah, Friedrich Nietzsche, that, that, that's the one who, you know, he was famous for, among other things, the claim that there are no facts, only values. So Foucault, Michel Foucault, got a hold of that and ran with it. Jacques Derrida, likewise. And, you know, some of the others were more Marxist. So in their way, they got a hold of Karl Marx and his idea that the ruling ideas of every age have always been the ideas of the ruling class. So what was thrown into question back when I was in school was whether you could know anything at all innocently or objectively or even aspirationally impartially, that is to say, trying to be fair. And what we were taught was the answer is no, you've got to be an activist in your scholarship and in the classroom. And we've seen that come to fruition in our day when, my, 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 you know, not only me, like good old me, but my, my colleagues, my peers, are now, you know, tenured profs living that out. So that's that's a great introduction. Can you draw is there a line that one can draw between let's take one example. Students disrupting and in the end violently disrupting Douglas Mary's speech in 2017 at Middlebury College and some of these ideas that maybe you could argue starts with Nietzsche but really kind of come into their full bloom with the critical theorists that you mentioned. Can we draw a line between this kind of behavior of aggressive intolerance of ideas, the idea that there are certain viewpoints, usually conservative viewpoints, that are akin to hate speech or violence, narrowing of the discourse in the name of sort of safety, you could argue. Is there a direct line between some of these ideas in the, the late 20th century to the campus today? Yeah, there, there sure is. I think there's no question about it. You're referring to Charles Murray, I, I, I think. Yes, uh, I'm sorry. Did I say Douglas? Doug, I meant Charles Douglas Murray. Murray. I'm sure they would have been equally inhospitable to Douglas Murray if he had been speaking. But Charles Murray, yeah, he was violently attacked at a great school, Middlebury, precisely because students had been educated to believe that words are violence, thoughts are violence, concepts they don't like are, are violence and views that they don't like are violence. And so they reacted violently. These were the students of teachers who had been educated in, in my day, in the, in the 
in the 90s when I was in, in graduate school, we had teachers, let's not forget, who took their positions in the 60s and 70s when there was, you know, it was, it was the time when, when, when the baby boom generation had hit college age. And we went from about 9 million college professors, we went from about 4 million college professors around the time when this started in the, in the mid 60s to 9 million in a decade. And they were all drawn from students who had been radicalized by, by, by their sense of outrage at the Vietnam War. And so you had this rapid demographic change in the professoriate, and they brought with them not an ethos of, of scholarly impartiality, but of activism. And they imposed that on their, their students who became the teachers of these kids who today believe that it's the, it's the job of, of, of faculty and, of, and, of, and of, 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 of students who aspire to be virtuous in the manner of their favorite professors to shut down thoughts they don't agree with. Now that's, I want to, tease that out a little bit because one of the virtues of universities, at least I was led to believe, and I graduated from undergraduate in 1994, was that college was a place where you could have intense, you know, it's the idea of a dialectic. It's the, it's the, you can have an intense argument or a disagreement about a subject matter and that the process of that dialectic the process of the discourse, the invitation to other scholars to pick apart your work in a peer review, for example, is what led us to objective truth. Does that still exist? And I think you argue it certainly does exist in, say, a field like economics. It does exist in physics. Where, does it exist in the liberal arts? It does not. That is a, that's, that's terrifying. So tell, tell me more. Yeah. Listen, the, the, the broad public needs to understand this better. Although I think they are getting the message. 59% of Republican households view higher education, view universities as bad for the country. Now, mm -hmm. now it's, it's, it's not, not, not quite as many in, in democratic households, but the reason for that is there are so few Republican voters and so many democratic voters among the faculty. To try to answer your question in, in, in another way, back in the 50s, Republican to Democrat voters, or roughly speaking, liberal to conservative, how, how, however you'd like to construe this, it was about, about two to one Democrat to Republican. By the 70s, it was two-thirds Democrat mm -hmm. voters. By the 90s, three-fourths. Today, do you have any idea what it is today? Just it's like 95 percent, right? Rough metric. It's about 13 to one Democratic voters and Democratic donors to one overall, but that includes the sciences, Eli. In history, what do you think the percentage is using this rough metric of Democrat to Republican voters or more broadly left to right? Because many of the, these, these you know, faculty are far to the left of the Democrat party, in fact. Any guess in a field like history or journalism or psych? First of all, journalism should not be an academic field. I just want to say that as a professional journalist. No, no um, question about journalism it. <laughs> schools are a waste of money. So kids, if you want to be a journalist, get a job as a journalist and learn how to do it on the job. Hey, but, what about creative writing? Well, I mean, listen, I think that there's probably I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, universities in some ways, they're not it's not a lost cause. They're, we still have leading universities that will you know, they lead the world in computer science or physics and other kinds of hard sciences. That's very good. And, you know, there's a great value in reading real historians. 
and they're they're probably and they're a very good left wing historian. So it's not it's not. I mean, I'm looking forward to a new oh, book yeah. by this woman from Harvard about this new by a sort of the definitive biography of J. Edgar Hoover. I will certainly read that, and I'm sure she you know kind of fits the the bill. That's I, so the argument is not. I'm not making a kind of radical mm-hmm, argument, mm-hmm. but what I'm trying to get at here, and I want to. Well, let's go back to your question. You asked. So tell me, is it is it twenty seven <laughs> to one in history or something? Or it's around thirty three to oh one. Oh my god! In history, twenty to one in journalism, seventeen to one in psych. I'm in English. We're a rounding error in English. I mean, somebody like me, I'll say it publicly. I tend to vote Republican. That's my right as an American citizen. It's one of the two major parties in our country. Is it so shameful? Am I such an awful? Weirdo, there's no one like me, really, statistically, you know, hardly any. Now, what, how did that happen? Because when we yeah, talk about uh, it in terms of Republican, yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm sorry, when we talk about it, it's not even Republic, it's not a partisan thing. It's not like the Democratic Party is good. It's, it's like almost ideological, right? Two things happen demographically. This is okay. overdetermined. There, 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 there's a question of an influx of ideas from France, French theory, which was largely Nietzschean, but also Marxist, neo-Marxist, neo-Freudian, mm-hmm. neo-Nietzschean. There's also, again, let me say this to be clear, a, a, a remarkable demographic shift. When the baby boomers, who are people born what, after World War II, mm-hmm. hit college age, from 1965 to 1975, there's a need to double the number of faculty in America. Let's think about that. Instead of struggling for no jobs like new PhDs do now, people were walking into jobs like without interviews, really, without any difficult process to go through. So we doubled the number of faculty and we did so from a graduate student pool that had just been protesting the very, very, very divisive matter of the Vietnam War. And and if you put those two factors together, this huge you know, exercise in, in hiring with the fact of, of, of a radicalized pool to draw from, you transformed overnight those who were teaching in the classroom. They brought with them an ethos of activism. By the, by the 90s, when we see the, the, the first kind of wave of PC, which was wokeism before woke, those, you know, those faculty now are in administrative positions. Mm. It gets to where you can't be an administrator unless you have the support of, of, the, of, of the faculty who are really overwhelmingly not only Democrat voters. In fact, that would be, be okay. By, you know, that metric is terrible, which I just told you, but it's even worse than that because, in, in fact, many, many, many faculty are far to the, to the left of that. These are really radicals who think our society is fundamentally evil and corrupt and has to be not only transformed but overturned. They're teaching students to hate their country. And I can't say it any more clearly than that. And they're doing it because of these shifts in hiring and then in, in, in the makeup of the administration. Administration mm-hmm. used to be a moderating factor in all this, but it's not anymore because administrators are now beholden to this you know, very skewed kind of body of, of, of faculty. And, and they were trained at the ideological level in this French theory, which taught that you know, the self that you you know, think you're familiar with doesn't really exist. It's a mm-hmm. symptom. It's, you know, I had a teacher who used to like to say, you know, your, your ego, it's just a scab on your unconscious, you know, which is a kind of, you know, quick summary of, of Freud. But in, 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 in other ways, in terms of, as we mentioned, Marx and Nietzsche, Foucault, and I don't want to 
bore listeners with a reiteration of these names, but these were thinkers who taught that the self is an illusion, an effect of structures of oppression. And your very sense of self was oppressive to others <laughs> and even oppressive to you. And, and, and so we had to deconstruct everything. That's all we used to do. Well, so I want to now get into it would have been, I guess, more than 20 years ago now, you had Alan Sokol, who is a physicist, issue a hoax paper to Social Text, which is a postmodern journal that proved with very dense academic jargon or alleged to prove that the theory of gravity wasn't real. And then he revealed it to be a hoax in a separate article and has gone on to write a few books about this. And there were people at the time who sort of said the response to this was it. And, and we're going to we're, we're building up to the next generational hoax. But let's talk about that, because at the time people said, you know, this might be the end of postmodernism because people who are attacking the very scientific method, the process of how we know things in science, the hard sciences, and claiming that this is just one perspective, that, you know, it's it's absurd, and that how could this get through to this journal, which at the time didn't have peer review, but still. So it seemed like there was a moment where, you know, some of these ideas would be as they will, you know, fashion changes in everything, including academia, that, you know, maybe we were moving on. Or did that never happen? And that's what I wanted to ask there on Sokol. It, it, it never happened. It got worse. How? People like yourself and, you know, well-meaning citizens of the United States with common sense looked at that and thought, oh, surely this is the end of something silly that can't last. It's just been exposed. That was in a journal called Social Text, by the way, which we all thought was the greatest when I was in school. I was still in school then and, and in graduate school, and we were all kind of scandalized by this, you know, terrible uh, prank that had been been played. I have to say, I was starting to become critical then myself, so I, I, ha I had to give it some thought. But it was widely dismissed among my peers. And the fact is, Eli, although people like you and your listeners would see something like that and think this can't last, the 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 the, the students in, in in graduate school that that I knew and across the country, those that I didn't, in fact, just took it as further evidence that the broad public was caught up in false consciousness and all too ready to dismiss what they don't understand. And they looked on it as a sophomoric prank and they took it as a, a sign that they needed to double down, which is what they did. And so up until today, you have this kind of work going on, which is as ridiculous as the Sokol essay, if not more. I hope Listeners will believe me when I say that this ridiculous essay that said gravity is a fiction is really not an exaggeration, but typical of the work, so-called work that goes on in the humanities. I, I, I can tell you the reason is that people were committed to that kind of mm. work. They were committed. They were, in, they were into an approach that said, we're not scholars pursuing truth, whatever it leaves, leads. We're committed to certain ideals that are radical Marxian, feminist, queer radical ideals. And everything else is subordinate to that. Well, I want to let's, I want to take a moment here because you know it, you know, as a, you've, you've studied it, you went to graduate school. Can we steel man it? I mean, is there something that is a value of this postmodern approach 
and that we, that's worth retaining? And is there a way to kind of have it without having it become something that drowns everything else out, that, that, that just destroys the prospect for any real discourse? Absolutely. Okay, so talk Absolutely. about, talk I'm, about I'm that. So, I'm so glad that, that you asked because I'm a great fan of the work of Michel Foucault, for example, to this day. In other words, and others, again, Jacques Derrida, not to get, get too hung up on names, but the idea of interrogating things like, what do we mean by knowledge? What is the self? What, what is culture and civilization? And, and how do we understand justice, really? And how are, how are our own ideas uh, about these things just distorted by our own kind of standpoint and, and so on? These are all valid questions. My view, Eli, is, is that the, the great sort of masters, as it were, of, of these topics, the theorists themselves, mm -hmm. Louis Althusser was, was another one, happened to have unfortunately strangled his wife and was committed to an insane asylum. He pleaded that he, 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 he just, he was massaging her and then he, he kind of snapped out of a, a trance and there she was dead. I don't know what that says about the postmodernists. I'll leave that to people like James Lindsay and, and Chris Rufo to say, who I think do great work. But what I would say for myself is that even some of these rather strange, eccentric figures absolutely are what we should be hearing from in college and in academia. They just shouldn't be enshrined as the one right approach. And if you deviate, you'll be punished. What I object to is the rote way in which their followers imposed the crudest versions of their thoughts and kind of made a method out of it. I remain a, a proud card-carrying Lacanian, which, which is a kind of form of Freudian psychoanalysis that, that continues to this day. It's popular in Latin America and in Israel and around the world, in New York, in San Francisco, in urban areas, you'll find it more than in you know, other parts of the US that take different approaches to therapy. But to answer your question, it's really unfair to the theorists themselves who are creative thinkers, who came up with new ways of looking at things. And instead of the students and the faculty taking that as inspiration and doing that themselves, they became a bunch of zombies and drones and followers and conformists reiterating the crudest versions of this stuff. But to steelman it isn't that hard. I oppose what this stuff turned into, but I challenge any listeners who are, might agree with me on this, which I hope there are some, to go and read the original you know, thinkers and not come away with some interesting thoughts. I'm, I want to take a moment here because what is the best introduction or way to understand it for somebody who isn't steeped in all of this? Because it can be very dense and intimidating. When I was in college, I was a philosophy major and I did read some of this, but it was hard to get through. So how would you like if you, you know, for the average listener who's curious, you know, would you read Michel Foucault's work on prison? Or, for example, I'm, a, I'm a familiar with that or something like that. And what's the way to kind of approach this text in a way that, you know, doesn't just like it's very it, it can be very dense and hard to get through. But I mean, I understand that there's a payoff in your view. And, and so how, how would you recommend someone who coming from the outside to learn about this information, how they should start? Yeah, I would read Discipline and Punished by Foucault or pick up the Foucault Reader, which has mm -hmm. some interviews at the back with faculty at Berkeley, where Foucault was very happy to discover San Francisco across the bay, the leather scene, the, sure. I guess, S&M 
scene in, in the 80s. And, you know, Dreyfus and Rabinow's co-reader, again, has interviews included at the back. And I would recommend Foucault's interviews. Interviews with any of these gurus are good because they're forced to be more clear in, 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 in interviews. Lacan's own writings, Jacques Lacan's own writings are impenetrable, but his seminars where he was lecturing to people are, uh, are legible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, I like by Foucault, the history of sexuality, not like in the sense of agree with, but like, I feel I can kind of understand it. And I think that might be true for any reasonably intelligent person. I'm, I'm, I'm not even reasonably intelligent. So, no, uh, and, 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 you know, I, the other thing I, I, I could say is, is that there are so many secondary texts now on this stuff that it's really not hard. When we were in school in my generation, we didn't have that. I would advise anyone interested to just even go to Amazon and find a primer of, and it's bound to be, re, re, you know, reasonably edifying. At, at, at this point, what they're, what they were saying isn't as much of a mystery as it used to be. I would just caution that you shouldn't expect too terribly much of a kind of religious experience because what you'll get, if you look at it seriously, is like some interesting insights that might, might be useful, but not, not necessarily life-changing. Which is an aside, do you have any insight as to why someone as libertine in his personal life as Michel Foucault would end up becoming an ardent supporter of Ayatollah Khomeini, <laughs> which, you know, really is one of the more anti-fun tyrants of Really not a era. fun guy. Not no, a fun guy. He's against and, fun. <laughs> and, and Foucault was was a supporter. They made it a little too fun. <laughs> Foucault, as as you know, was a Foucault was was a supporter of of the Ayatollah's revolution, right? And our mutual friend Mariam, forgetting now. Yeah, I know Megadosh. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. gonna have her uh, on at some point. Yes. The greatest, such a great Love her. woman and an advocate for the Iranian people. How did a liberatory, radical, revolutionary thinker like Foucault, who questioned everything, and in a way a representative figure for the postmodern left, whose followers educated the next generation of faculty who are now in charge in the university, my peers, and whose students are doing things like shutting down Charles Murray, which is a very Ayatollah thing to do, right? It so is. there's some con continuity there. That, that, but, 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 but how would a guy who wanted us to question what sex is and what a human being is and what a body is, right? Like he said, like sex, uh, I don't know about that, but body, what a body can do, let's investigate that. And he had fun playing around with that. Well, look, to try to steal man it, as you said, he didn't know any more than anyone else where that revolution was going to lead. He also didn't know much about Iran. And like a lot of Westerners, including some of our friends, let's say, among the neocon set, he thought that anything was better than the dictatorship that was in charge at the time. And he, he look, he believed in taking risks to give, <laughs> to give him his due. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he you know, advocated for what Iran became. But he, he hated Western hegemony in all its forms. There you go. Now I, now I want to move on. So we talked about Sokol, which is important. Generation later, you get Helen Pluckrose, Bogosian, and James Lindsay. And they do Sokol, you know, they do Sokol next level because they get together and they produce a series of papers, which then they submit to peer-reviewed journals eventually, who, which are 
in this what we might call I call hyphenated study areas. And these papers are ridiculous because, you know, it's like rape in dog parks in Portland is one of them. And it deals with, you know, do men who insert things in their anus have, you know, are going to be less transphobic. It's like deliberately trolling. It's just, it's nonsense deliberate nonsense and then they they i guess they put 20 papers together seven of them get published and i'm like oh well hey i think i think we've got more evidence of the sokol thesis here that there's something amiss and how could these scholarly journals publish this garbage and yet in the case of bogosian he is terminated i mean he's pushed out of his job at portland state university and he's denounced by a lot of the leading academics as using what what are the the phrase it's so bizarre he was making the journal editors human subjects for an experiment is their argument which was just i i, I don't know what to say for me the the those three are like you know galileo you know they're but i would love to kind of get what's what how what was the impact of that because that that like leads to despair from my perspective. Speaking as a person of hyphenation myself, I, I, I am a, <laughs> a, a Jewish American. I take offense at your derogation of hyphenated studies. And I, I we're Ashkenazi Americans. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speak for yourself. I'm Ashkenazi, but not narrow. That's my view. Okay, on this. Fair enough. But look, the serious point is important. And it's a reiteration uh, of what I said a moment ago about the Sokol affair, only it's worse because we had the Sokol affair, the hoax of the 90s, now reiterated, and it's as if we'd forgotten the, the, the previous hoax. Only this ho- these hoaxes, which show something important, they show what Galileo showed, which is that the authorities are wrong. It, it doesn't make a dent in the consciousness of this overwhelmingly radical faculty, I, you know, we discussed some of the st- statistics earlier, who don't want to hear a thing that they don't want to hear. Uh, they view knowledge as power and interest, and any data that doesn't support their power and interest is uh, somebody else's power and interest, which they reject. So they see Bogosian as a miscreant as a threat to their commitments and values because they don't come into academia looking to pursue truth with the value of cultivating a variety of views on what might be true, but they come in trying to impose their values. And so they're not easily dissuaded, Eli. And so when somebody publishes a paper showing that the penis is a social construct, which is another one of these that Jimmy Concepts and Helen Pluckrose, who I admire, both of them, published. You know, the penis is a social construct, was their claim. And, and you know, to my colleagues, first of all, that's not in their interest to question it. And, and, you know, secondly, they believe it themselves. I wish I could say that things aren't as bad as you might have heard, or that these hoaxes are exaggerations, but they're not exaggerations. Things are as bad and worse as these hoax publications that are published making claims like the penis is a social construct. And the reason for it, let me be clear, is not hard to fathom. 
It's because we've staffed universities with activists, not scholars. There's a difference. The, everyone knows what the difference is. I don't even like need to explain it, but the activist is committed to certain values and certain goals and certain outcomes that are political. The scholar is open-minded and interested in, in cultivating different viewpoints to try to get at the truth. Well, does this not, though, pre present a kind of paradox, which is to say, on the one hand, I don't want to impose a rule that says universities should only teach students useful information. That's no one can define that. In fact, I like, you know, it's it's fine to have, I don't know, Howard Zinn figure or somebody like that. It's it's always we should have people who are going to be very critical of America or critical of things. And that's good. On the other hand, it's so overwhelmingly, as we discussed, in one direction, there's already this, uh, you know, you cannot have any dissent, especially, God forbid, from the from a conservative, you know, that you would give, you know, tenure to or something like that. So how do you deal with this without it without making what I think is a mistake of having the state getting involved in higher education in a way, which I think in some ways they would love to be like dissidents and feel like it's, you know, darkness at noon or whatever. On the other hand, what do you do about it? I mean, do you kind of root for the end of these universities? Do you want to go back to a world in which like the 1920s when only, you know, 5% of Americans went to college? I don't have the answer, but you've give, done a lot of deep thinking on this. So what do, how do you how do we get out of this? I would say two things in response to your excellent question. What is to be done? The, the Leninist question, the right question. Defund the thought police. Mm. My friend and colleague at, at, at the Center for the American Way of Life, Life, Arthur Millick, wrote an essay. I think it was for National something, National Affairs, National Review, National... National Affairs. It was the AI magazine. Yeah, it's very good. There you go. There you go. Called Suicide preventing suicide by higher, higher education. And he, he made the case there for, for, for cutting funding to institutions that teach students, young people. In the, in the days of safetyism, I, also, I, I, I almost want to say children, to hate their country, which is kind of a form of child abuse. So, but, but why and how to, to do that? Let me, let, me, let me be clear about that. Almost every state charter of a state institution of higher education will have some clause in it that says there will be no political interference in state universities and state universities may not be used for political purposes. It's in almost every charter of a state mm. university. Like, can you believe it? Mm. It needs to be enforced. It's right there. No university, no state funded university may be used for partisan political purposes. What could be more rational and more commonsensical in a pluralistic democracy? It needs to be enforced. People need to take hold of that. But that only gets us so far because are we, are we not talking about, I mean, some of this might be partisan, I suppose, but it's really a deeper issue. It's like, if you think there's no such thing as objective truth, that's not a partisan question. That's <laughs> just, you know, you, you know, you, you have a view of the world that may not be directly political, right, but, right. but it's, it's certainly affecting things, you know. Right. Well, when you put it that way, you know, I'm tempted to go in, in two different directions. One is to say you, you, you could sound like a mental patient. The other is to say, welcome, 
let's talk about it. I had a, a, a mentor, some listeners may remember if they're old enough, Norman O. Brown. He was a guru of the 1960s. You're too young to remember, Eli. But Norman Nobby, as we used to call him, wrote a book called Love's Body and before that, a book called Life Against Death. And he was for a kind of Blakean, you know, kind of a reimagination of what it means to live and be, be human. And, and it could sound a little crazy, but we, we loved it. We loved him. And I would say universities should make a place for that. What, what needs to be clear is that universities shall not be a place for advocating one narrow kind of set of opinions about what it's, what's acceptable to think and to say and, and, and what candidates you, you have to revile and what speakers you, you need sure. to up. And look, if you want to ask me, as, as you seem to want to, what about teachers who, who, who say there's no truth? I think they have a right to say that. They sure. just need to make a case for it. And they need to be, and this is the role of administration, which is not being done. They need to be one of many faculty. There need to be other teachers who say, look, <laughs> we know what facts are. We know what truth is. Compare what I'm saying with what your teacher in, you know, your other class right. is right. saying. And that's what we do not have today. Right. Like it's, I have no problem if a history department has a 1619 project type professor who will tell a story of America that where's, you know, the most important event is the first slaves and, and, and it goes from there. That's important. But I think there should also be history professors who take a different or more nuanced view. And that's the point, right? I mean, the point is, is that, should, you know, students should be challenged to confront new ideas and not just have one set of ideas kind of reinforced. That's the problem. I, I, I'm like you. I, I went into college. I went to UCLA before I went to UCSC for grad school. And I, 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 I was... Real. I had gotten out of high school where I was not thrilled. And I was delighted by the, the diversity, true diversity of ideas and, uh, you know, the variety of visions of what it meant to think and live and to know about things that mattered. But I went to school in the 1980s, which I consider a golden age, still a part of the golden age from maybe 1948 to 1988. We had the education system that was the envy of the world. We still have that in the sciences, but they're aiming at that now with their social justice statements, their, their, their diversity statements. You've got to now make, every time you apply for a job in a university, a, a statement of how you would help foster di diversity or social justice. It's, it's, a, it's a political loyalty test. So that's, that's all gone away. And they're even aiming at the sciences now. I, I hope you hear what I'm saying. Physics is next, and you know chemistry and biology are are next. I studied humanities and social sciences, and I'll never regret a minute of it. In part because it included teachers who said, "You don't know anything. You don't even know how to think. You don't even know what a self is." Mm -hmm. You know, but 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 they were one of many, and and that is that is what's changed. They're now a monologue rather than a part of um, you know, a, a, a rich kind of interesting dialogue. I want to challenge when you said about this golden era of 48 to 88, because an earlier generation of conservatives, starting with William F. Buckley and Godman and Yale, Paul Hollinger comes to mind. There's a, there's a series of these conservative critiques in that period that said, we're all going to hell and the university can't be saved. This is, you know, Bloom, 
This is the exodus of all the neocons from Cornell. I mean, this is all of that's happening in the late 60s, the 70s and everything. And, you know, there were issues of national review and commentary where people were writing at the time, what are we going to do about our universities? And yet now we look at it as a golden year. How did that happen? Talk to me about that. You know, those were the days. Paul Hollander was a personal friend of mine, the late Paul Hollander. Yeah. Great man. And, and, and look, I read, I didn't have the pleasure of knowing Alan Bloom, but I know some of his students. I was one of these radical postmodern students of the Frankfurt School of Theodore Adorno and Herbert Marcuse. And I read Alan Bloom's closing, The American Mind. And I discussed it with my conservative dad. And I was a liberal rebelling from my dad. And my dad had gone to school with Lionel Trilling, was his great mentor at Columbia, mm. the first Jew tenured at Columbia, who later hired Edward Said. And that's right. There you go. So anyway, this is a very hip kind of podcast for squares. I, anyway, <laughs> today, somebody knows out there what I mean by that. I mean, you know, but the point is that it's a little bit like looking at the trial of Socrates and saying, what was wrong with Athens? They killed Socrates. That was absolutely wrong. Yeah. And philosophy mattered enough that anyone cared what he said. And there was a robust debate about it. And Plato wrote about it. What I'm trying to say is in the 80s, we still had a public sphere that could support people like Ellen Bloom and other critics, what was going on in a way that mattered enough that it counterbalanced what was going on. And we've, we've lost that today. I insist that I refer to a golden age. And I know that people make fun of the whole idea of a golden age in any period of human history. But to me, that's crazy because they're like, clearly, hold on, who makes fun of that? They're obviously golden ages. You just have to look well, at history. You. Thank you for saying I'm sorry, yeah. but I mean, like, oh, no, look, thank you for saying it. I mean, mid century, mid, mid 20th century was not a golden age in Europe, right? So <laughs> no. if you recall, late 30s to 40s. The, look, yeah, but Republican I, Rome was a golden age for the Roman I'm, Empire. You don't have to convince me, but but I've met people who scoff when one says back in the day there were some good things going on. They always like to point out the bad things, which were there too. But I'm of the mind that, you know, one day is not quite like another, thank God. And and some sometimes there's better stuff going on and sometimes there's worse, unfortunately. And I think that in in the 80s and 90s, there was still enough room to say things that, that challenged what has now become un, unchallengeable in, in universities. I remember people at the university where I was, after Bloom's book came out, out debating it, actually, bringing it up for discussion. When I started the Center for Academic and Intellectual Freedom at Northern Michigan University, I brought Mark Lilla to an out-of-the-way campus of Northern Michigan University. It's mm -hmm. up in the Upper Peninsula. Nobody even sees it on the map. It's You say, uh-huh, but do you really know where it is? It's, is it near Traverse it's, City? It's, uh, it's Traverse City is centrally located compared to us. Um, okay. it's, Fair it's enough. Not, yeah. <laughs> My point is that I had a good turnout from Mark Lilla, one of our great contemporary thinkers, but the gender studies crowd absolutely stayed away, and a lot of people stayed away. I brought Greg Lukianoff to campus. And again, we had a good turnout among 
you know, sort of interested people and local, you know, townies, but, but also faculty and students. But there was a huge kind of contingent of committed left faculty who, who just stayed away, who wouldn't engage. And in the period you refer to, there was still engagement. And look, Bloom's book became a bestseller. Could we imagine that today? I don't know. Did, did Douglas Murray's book become a, a bestseller recently? Maybe so. I'm not sure that I have all the answers to all of this, but I do think that things have gotten much, much worse, un unfortunately, because of the mechanics of, of, the, of, the, um, of the university. And because of, to be blunt, the people working in the universities, the people who were hired, they just hired only people like themselves after a certain point. And that's not exactly counterintuitive in some ways. People are horrible. That's like a fact of human nature. Mm. <laughs> it's not the only fact, but the, 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 the truth is, is that so many people only hired people like themselves that I couldn't even get. And I was surprised. This is how na naive I am. Some of my feminist colleagues to come out and debate Mark Lilla's book on the once and future liberal, the, 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 way, the ways in which, as he claimed, identity politics hurt the Democratic Party, and I'm not even a Democrat voter. And I brought Mark to, to address my colleagues on how they hurt their own case and brought Trump into power, and they boycotted. Hmm. Well, that it strikes me again, what's as an outsider to the academy, that, that is, that's an anti-intellectual instinct. The intellectual would relish the chance to defend and explore a position with somebody who disagrees with them. It is as old as Hillel and Shammai. It is <laughs> a tradition that goes back. And that's how we get knowledge is that we say, all right, well, what do you think? And what do you, you know, and I, I just don't, and, and to, to, to no longer have that, I think of the great firing line with William F. Buckley, oh. he would bring on Noam Chomsky. He would bring on the leading leftist of his of day and, and you would get so much out of that to have people have that kind of discussion and it's now it's like we couldn't imagine something like that yeah that's very well put i grew up on <laughs> firing line as a child with my yeah. dad it was one of the few things we shared along with the red Sox. and i noticed you're wearing a mitts sure no but I, no no uh, it's a 76ers i should say oh well just as bad equally yeah. bad i'm a Celtics <laughs> guy but anyway Look, you're making a great, great, great point. Buckley had his show and he had Chomsky on. He had my friend on from the ACLU, whose name I'm going to blank on now. And, and back when the ACLU was, you know, really advocating for, for, for freedom of speech. And, and we, we don't have that anymore. That's the problem. But you, you think that the way, the way out of it, your <laughs> view is to enforce, at least for state schools, the idea that it should not be, you cannot politicize things, you can't have an overtly, we should, you know, keep the pressure up so that you don't have to sign the equivalent of like loyalty oaths to various ideological agendas, as you said. So there are some things and, and, and at least, you know, I'm rooting for the University of Austin, Barry Weiss's. Me too new university in texas where you know it's very hard to put a university together and you know there are maybe some signs that if you know i think i think a, a university president at a, at a prominent elite school that would turn on some of this group think and some of the intolerance some of the illiberal arts which i think will be the title of our 
episode here. Ah, good. That person like will it. have a great political future, I would imagine, because I think there's a lot of Americans who kind of are hungry for this and want to know that, the, that these universities can be a place that fosters critical thinking and not indoctrination. But it's been very difficult and frustrating. Well, I couldn't agree more. And we are in the age of the illiberal arts, which means imposing on young minds views, thoughts, words that they can say and must say, words that they can't say and mustn't say, thoughts that they can't think and mustn't think, thoughts that they must think. It's really, I, I can't overstate how then really terrifying it is to me to see, or any faculty, I guess, who's not folk, see this go on because at the end of the day, it's these young people who are being harmed by it and who are being enlisted to enforce it. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, someone like my friend Nadine Strassen at, at used to be the head of the ACLU, you know, she, she's still fighting the good fight. The folks at FIRE, the Foundation sure. for Individual Rights and Expression are fighting the good fight. But in the days of liberal education, the students are suffering. And I'm not sure who's really benefiting from any of this. It's so perverse. Who, 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 if we stalemate this, do you think is actually gaining from any of this? I, I have some ideas. The Chinese uh, Communist Party. That may be true. <laughs> They're gaining. The Chinese commies are doing great. And are they funding it? What are they? What are no, they, how, I don't think it's the matter. I don't think it's that. Conspiracy. I'm not arguing that there that it's a conspiracy like that. But I'm saying is that if you if you have an if you if you have a generation of elites yeah. that are taught to fear critical, you know, engagement, yeah. Yeah. and to kind of hate or not, I don't want to say hate, but like you know, to think that our country was sort of founded is 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 is, is you know basically irredeemably evil and it's not everyone and it doesn't always work that way a lot of people will yeah. go to an elite school and rebel and you know i certainly had a little bit of that in me and so there's a it's not it's not all in one thing but it is it is a problem because we want the universities to be i mean we if you care about the humanities you care about history you care about literature you care about these wonderful things for human society you have to care about this problem right now in our universities and that's why i'm so glad i had you on you know, because you oh, well, would really you. clear it up. I have an idea, by the way, Gabriel. Let's do it. What is it? For your next book. I think yes. based on this interview. Yeah. To be called, actually, Michelle Foucault would hate you. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> he would hate you. He would love the Ayatollah, but you he would hate. And, he would and... hate you. He would hate you and what you're doing yeah. right now because he, he was, a, he you was know, an original. Yes. And he, he was a free thinker and he had to engage in his era, all kinds of, you know, unsafe spaces and things like that. Honestly, I think he'd be kind of a neocon today or at some point, believe it or not, or, or neoliberal. He, oh, he, he was always moving. Yeah, that's right. Right. He was, he was always uncomfortable. Anyway, I cannot thank you enough. Gabriel, thank you for coming on the re-education. We'll have to have where, you back. Where, where, where's Anna and, and Dasha? I was told that I would be on the Red Scare. <laughs> is that not the case? I I'm looking for beautiful Russian women, and I understood uh, that I would be on the Red Scare. Podcast. Oh, they are great! That, yeah, not <laughs> what's happening here. That's great. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This is a great. This is a great episode. Okay. 
This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.